may be seated. Our Heavenly Father in prayer again. Uh, Father God, uh, we pray this morning uh, for the nation of India, and we pray that you continue to raise up your saints there. We pray that you build your church on the subcontinent, that many would come to know you, Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs, and even professed but backslidden Christians would hear the gospel of our Savior and be converted to new life in him. We pray particularly for the Christians in uh, Odisha uh, that uh, have faced such intense uh, persecution. We pray, Father, that those who are facing forced conversions and facing death sentences and, and facing uh, removal from their hometowns because of their faith in Christ would stand strong and endure even these penalties, which are, as we know, still just momentary and light afflictions. Would they stand fast for Christ and so show a dying world a better way? We pray, Father, for the continued and increased evangelization of the Sikh in both India and as they spread abroad. We pray that um, those of us in the West would not be uh, ignorant of their beliefs or customs, but we would be familiar with them so that we can show them clearly how Jesus is the Lord of all. And we pray, Father, for the uh, region of uh, Rajasthan. We thank you, Father, for the growing church there. But we pray, Father, um, that you would bring relief from the anti-conversion laws that are forbidding so many from publicly declaring faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for a government that would not try to bind the consciences of men and women. And we pray that your gospel would flourish, though, despite whatever the state would do to it. Father, we thank you this weekend in particular that we have freedom of conscience, that we can worship according to the dictates of our conscience, that we are free to follow Christ and so, Father, we thank you for the, the relative freedoms that you have bestowed on us as we celebrate our independence. May that truly be a time of thankfulness for your blessings. And we pray, Father, uh, for our communities this weekend, this week. We know that um, accidents, uh, danger, um, and sometimes even violence are a subset of our celebrations of freedom. And so we pray, Father, for safety. We pray for peace. We pray, Father, for our first responders, particularly in Cleveland, that they would be effective, that they would have an extra measure of grace and restraint, that they would have uh, peace and calm and clear-headedness, and that they would have the energy that they need 
to work through a very busy few days. Father, we pray that our celebrations would be honoring to you in all that we do, that we would be captivated by the gospel of peace, so that we would share it with those who need that freedom more than what America could ever offer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in Titus uh, chapter 3, so if you want to turn, click, swipe, tap to Titus chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seats or in the bookshelf in the back. And uh, if you do need one, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. Working our way through this book, um, three more messages, including today, in Titus. Uh, We're going to preach next week and then take a short break because Ben and Ryan are going to preach from Isaiah. And then we'll wrap up this book. But right now, we're in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So how do we live out a Christian faith before a watching world? How do we conduct ourselves in politics? What should our politics be like? I'm not really asking who should we vote for or even what issues should we support. There's a more basic or or primitive sense of of the word politics. Merriam-Webster defines it this way, the total complex of relations between people living in society. So what is a Christian's participation in this complex of relationships between people living in society? We can't leave society, so we have to relate to the people in it. But how? Christians should have different values than non-Christians. Christians should have different interests on the whole than non-Christians, certainly different ultimate interests or ultimate priorities. And these are the things that tend to come into conflict in public life. One professed Christian politician recently used the words of Jesus to promote abortion. Another professed Christian politician used the life of Jesus as a comparison to Donald Trump. These weren't local school board members. These were nationally known household names. In Ashland County, there are Amish men going to jail because they won't put a light on their buggies at night. 
A Catholic priest in New York was sentenced to six months in jail for putting locks and chains on a Planned Parenthood facility. Other Christians are calling for boycotts of Target or Bud Light. Another professed Christian preacher uses a bullhorn to tell Christian children that their youth pastors are leading them astray. Are any of these a model for Christian life in the public square? Are any of them close? My message is titled Gospel Ethics. But that's very close to a couple weeks ago I talked about gospel living. And if I had not already printed the sermon cards and had the graphics made, I might change today's message to gospel politics. Again, not in the sense of voting or, or elections so much as how do we interact with the various individuals and various competing claims in the public square. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this little letter that we call Titus, it's a message from the Apostle Paul to his ministry associate Titus about how he is to go about strengthening and protecting the churches on the island of Crete. And time and time again, the answer is rooted in the gospel. And that's no different here. The gospel calls us to a new type of politics. And I'll make three points under that basic idea. Now, the first point that I, I'm going to make, I need to develop it a little bit, but I, I derive it from verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In this sentence, Paul moves from rulers to all people. And he wants Titus to remind Christians on Crete about how to exist among these outsiders, whether they are powerful or whether they are paupers. This is a reminder, so it's something that they should already know. But since we get the impression that the Christians on Crete are either immature or weak in their faith, that leads me to think that these are ideas that should be very basic ones for Christians. These ideas should be lessons learned early in one's Christian walk. This is Christianity 120. It's not a graduate seminar, Christianity 690. And so, to the extent that we walk and live according to this pattern, I think demonstrates on some level basic Christian maturity. Not some sort of advanced Christian ethics. And there's a lot of words here in those two verses, a lot of separate commands, but I think they fall into relatively few buckets. And that first bucket is the relationship that Christians should have with rulers and authorities. And that would include anyone that has power in our political system, anyone who can in any sense be thought to be over us. For Christians living on Crete, that would have meant a Roman governor, 
which might have been uh, Brutidius Sabinus at the time of writing. It could have included the, it certainly would have included the infamous Caesar Nero. And at different times, it would have involved various local officials or even Roman military personnel. And in the same way for Christians today, it would include our police officers, at least when they are in their official capacity. It would include mayors and council members and governors and presidents. And this is no small deal. Because many of the Cretan Christians were no doubt Jews. And the Roman system was predicated on idolatry. They literally had a state religion that was opposed to the fundamental beliefs of Judaism and then Christianity. It was in no sense neutral. And within probably just two to three years of Paul writing this letter, the first Jewish-Roman war erupted, which eventually led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then 50 years after this letter, the Ketos War, or sometimes called the Second Jewish-Roman War, would lead to the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Romans in the same province as Crete. Now, that took place mostly in what we would call Libya today, but it, it just shows how much hostility there was and growing at the time of this little letter between Jews and Romans. And again, Jews would have been a significant part of the church on Crete. But that was not to be the Christians' calling. They were called to submit to be obedient to idolatrous and evil Rome. Now, submission and, and obedience are different. We've talked about that a little bit. Submission is more about deference and respect, and it can include obedience depending on the context of the relationship. But obedience is, that's doing what you're told. It's pretty straightforward. Now, we know that this was not an absolute command. Because we know that in many other places, Christians, including Paul, deliberately disobey authorities when those authorities are ordering them to be disobedient to God. So when authorities say, don't preach about Jesus, a Christian's response is to preach Jesus all the more. But the fact that Paul didn't have to come out and say that here tells us something. It tells us that the general posture of Christians toward their governments should be one of obedience. The caveats are so obvious that they don't even need to be mentioned. The times for disobedience are generally rare. Does that mean we will like what the government tells us to do? No. Does it mean that we can't work to change it? Not at all. We, we particularly live in a system that allows us to petition our government to make different laws, to make better laws. And if you think the government can do things better, you have many ways to communicate that, from, from voting to petitioning to protesting. But there's another part of our public posture that should commend more attention than our petitioning and our protesting. We should be ready for every good work. 
Christians should live their lives prepared to do good. Now, good work is anything that pleases God, that was created by God for Christians to do. Uh, And in this context, the emphasis is clearly on those works that help serve others. But we shouldn't forget that it is God who defines what works are good and what works need to be done. So we don't take our marching orders from culture, but from God. But how should we be prepared for these good works? Well, Titus knew the answer, I'm sure. It's what Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.17, Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Christians need to be trained by Scripture to recognize what is good and also to be of such a character to do what is good. Because a bitter heart is not likely to be ready to help the person in a broken-down car on the side of the road. An ignorant mind is not likely to be ready to share the good news of Jesus with a co-worker. So if we're not in Scripture, if we're not in prayer, if we're not practicing the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, it's likely that our hearts and our minds will not be ready for these good works. But we are commanded not just to do good works, but to be ready to do good works, both to recognize them and to do them. Now, Paul's next reminders start to focus more on the one-to-one relationships that all of society is built on. And they probably could be summed up with the command that Paul gives in Romans chapter 13 to be at peace with all men. But he's a little bit more specific here. Speak evil of no one is the word blasphemy. So just like faithful Jews knew not to blaspheme God, Christians were called to not blaspheme anyone, not to revile, not to slander, not to defame. The idea here is that Christians should not attribute false claims to malign a person's character. Now we need to sit on that for just a minute because our culture has become way too prone to this type of reviling. And just like in ancient Crete, too often Christians are guilty of looking more like the world than of Christ. And this can be a tough one. Because not only is it considered acceptable or even good to launch absurd attacks against people we dislike, Sometimes our side might pressure us into it. It's common to denounce other people whose politics we don't like as pedophiles or Nazis. 
Now, there are, sadly, pedophiles and Nazis in American society, but those terms don't apply to all your political opponents, and you know it. And that person who cut you off in the parking lot is far more likely to be a person making an innocent mistake than being fundamentally the choice epithet you emanated from under your breath. We're also quick to assume that people's motives are evil or wrong or stupid. That person wears a mask because they're a liberal scaredy cat, not because they are feeling under the weather and want to protect others. That person flies a giant American flag because she's a white nationalist, not because she's a veteran who shed her own blood defending what it represented. That, too, is speaking evil of a person, even if it's just in our hearts. None of this means that we shouldn't call out actual evil when it's admitted or objectively obvious. But unnecessarily assuming or naming evils in others makes it impossible to live at peace with unbelievers, which is precisely what we are called to do insofar as it depends on us, as Paul said in Romans 13. Similarly, we are to avoid quarreling, and the idea is the sort of person that does not create controversies and unnecessary debates, uh, being unnecessarily contentious. It wouldn't be going so far, I think, uh, to suggest this is close to Jesus' teaching that blessed are the peacemakers. And it goes well with the term gentle, which is a word that elsewhere Paul uses to describe Jesus. Instead, Christians should show perfect courtesy toward all people. Courtesy is not something that describes American public discourse very often these days, but it should be what describes Christian participation in the public discourse. In fact, not just a token amount of courtesy, but perfect or complete courtesy should characterize Christian interactions with the outside world. Today, those who are considered courteous and gentle in their speech are considered weak, or they're considered too tolerant of evil. If you are courteous to the bad people, whoever those are, then you must be a sympathizer. You're evil. You're a wimp. And so much of our current culture sees every debate as a zero-sum game. You're either with us or you're against us. There is nothing saying nice about them. The Christians stand in a unique place. We are both for and against our culture. We want to see our culture flourish because we love God and we love the people in this culture that are made in His image. We remain hopeful that our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors will turn to follow Jesus and receive eternal life. And we believe that no matter who they are or what they are, that's possible. God's arm is not too short to save 
even them. But we are against the desire of our culture to forget God or to run itself in opposition to him. That tension is what allows us to stay pure in a corrupt world without needing to become monks or become the Amish. It allows us to love people without loving their desires or their deeds. It allows us to, as Scripture says elsewhere, live in the world but not be of the world. So take an honest look at your heart and your actions or your words even. Could they be described this way? Could you be described as submissive, even generally obedient to authorities? Could you be described as a person who is at pains to speak only honestly about people's characters and motives? Are you a contentious person or a peaceable person? Do you show complete courtesy toward others, even in your heart? Are you ready for every good work? And is that evidenced by your daily rhythms? But that's your calling if you're in Christ. It's not optional. And like we said, this is just a reminder. Paul calls it a reminder. It's something you should have already known, already internalized since your early days of following Jesus. So if you've been doing that for a while, following Jesus, then it's time to get on with a different sort of political engagement. But you might protest, Chris, these people don't deserve this kind of consideration from me. Some of them are just outright evil. Why should I be considerate of evil people? Do you really think I should submit to wicked leaders? But your question, I think, gets to what is a good summary of this section. Gospel politics means treating people even better than they deserve. The Bible word for that is grace. Grace means treating people uh, in in such a way that, that they are given freely what they did not earn or deserve. So the answer to your your protested question is yes. You should be considerate of evil people. Yes, you should submit to wicked leaders more, even more than they deserve. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Treat outsiders better than they deserve. Treat outsiders better than they deserve. That's gospel politics. And that leads directly into the second point I want to make from this passage, which I take from verses 3 through 7. And Paul begins, For we ourselves were once. For means Paul is explaining the commands in the prior verses. He's giving a basis or a justification or an explanation of them. And that justification begins with what we ourselves once were. And what was that? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Whatever you might think of the world and the people therein, you were just that bad too. You were foolish, meaning blind to the spiritual reality of God and his wisdom, dull in your senses. Disobedient, the precise opposite word of obedience in verse 1. Not just to authorities, of course, but also to God who put those authorities in place. Led astray or deceived, believing in all sorts of falsehood that is in opposition to God's truth, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Non-Christians have no choice but to sin. Because even what's good, if not done out of service to God, for whom and from whom are all things, is a sin. The Bible says everything not from faith is sin. And the prophet Isaiah chastised the ancient Israelites by telling them that all their so-called righteous deeds were nothing more than dirty rags in God's eyes because they did not do them out of a faith commitment to the God of the universe. If you are blind to the truth about God's moral laws, then you're going to do what is right in your own eyes. You're going to go after whatever brings you pleasure, whatever passion motivates you. And so it's those things that control you. It's those things that demand your affection, that demand your time, that demand your energy. And that's what controls you. That's what Christians once were. And that should no longer characterize Christians. Because Christians are uniquely empowered to say no to the world's desires in order to say yes to God's holy calling. But Paul goes on. Passing our days in malice and envy. Isn't that how we often see people treat each other? Isn't that how we once were? Jealousy of others and a desire to see harm or at least misfortune come to them? Doesn't that animate so much of our public discourse? And because of it, hatred spews constantly. We were despised and hated by others, and so we returned the favor. But Christians now lay aside that sort of envy and hate. So the first part of Paul's justification is, hey, look at yourselves. You were no better. That's why Christians should have a hard time being judgmental. And a judgmental Christian scarily looks like a non-Christian. I don't mean that Christians should not call evil evil and should not call good good. They should. We're commanded to do that. That's righteous judgment. But being judgmental 
thinking of yourself as better than those other guys is completely out for Christians. As Martin Luther once wrote, there but by the grace of God go I. And what he meant is that he could look out at the worst offender, the cruelest sinner, and recognize that if it wasn't for God's grace, he might just as well be that despicable. Some of you grew up in church. And you grew up in very Christian families, and you never knew a time when you weren't a follower of Christ. Almost everyone on Crete was a convert. But you might be different. But here's the truth. Each of you is a convert if you are a Christian. No one is truly born a Christian. You might not remember or know when you took up your cross to follow Jesus, but you do need to know that there was a time when you didn't carry that cross. And at that time, you were bent just as much as the worst of the world. You just didn't have the knowledge or the power to effect that evil yet. God put family or a church or close friends in your life at a very young age to spare you from the worst effects of your rebellion. But all of us were infant infidels. And if you don't believe me, go ask someone who was around you when you were 18 months old. But Luther's words go deeper. There but the grace of God go I. And what are Paul's next words? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. His goodness and his loving kindness are are pretty good synonyms for grace. When God's grace appeared, what happened? He saved us. These words are seen by some as like an ancient creed, maybe a baptismal statement. And it's impossible to be sure, but they they certainly are poetic uh, synopsis of God's most magnificent act in dealing with humanity, his salvation. And that salvation was not on the basis of our good works. It was not on the basis of our righteous deeds. Instead, it was based solely on his mercy. Mercy is the the other side of the coin of grace. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. A foolish, disobedient, deceived slave to his own pleasure deserves a harsh and eternal judgment. Mercy spares that sword. How did God save us? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so there has to be a a, a spiritual cleansing of our sins, a new birth, a spiritual birth brought about by God's Holy Spirit. How do we get 
the Holy Spirit who washes us and makes us new? Well, he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. He gives the Spirit richly. And what is the result of that? That we are justified by grace and heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That first phrase, justified by grace, means something different than you might think. Because we hear the word justify and we think that it means make an excuse or give a bad reason. But the word truly means to make right, to make just. If you're justified in doing something, you have grounds for doing it. You have good reason for doing it. We get frustrated with people who seem to be preoccupied by finding justifications for their failures and their mistakes with little regard for the truth of those justifications or whether they hold up under scrutiny. But that's not God's justification. God's justification, which is totally an undeserved gift, it's grace, is that we are put back into right standing with God. And it's connected to this idea of having an inheritance in God's eternal life. Think about it this way. There will be a day when the followers of Christ will be sitting in God's glorious presence and enjoying his life and his fellowship. And if there were on that day any accuser left standing from the outside, that accuser might say, hey, that guy right there, he doesn't belong. I know what he did. I know the things that he said. I know some of the wicked things that went through his mind. He doesn't belong. And she, she's out of place. What's she doing by Jesus' side? Don't you know what she did? But that accuser would be wrong. Because they have a justification for being there in God's presence. They are justified in enjoying eternal life because their evil deeds have been removed from the ledger and placed on the ledger of Jesus Christ when he died for them. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the debt was fully paid and canceled so that there was no longer any crime in thought or in word or in action that would make the person unfit to be in God's eternal presence. That's what the Bible means when it says justified by grace. By the undeserved gift of Christ paying the price on the cross, sinners can be put right with God. You need only to turn to Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation and follow him, and you can count yourself among those whom Paul wrote, he saved us. Notice that in this short saying that God the Father saves us 
through God the Son, Jesus Christ, cleansing us by God the Holy Spirit. The whole triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was at work to bring us salvation by mercy, by grace, by goodness, by loving kindness, not by any good or righteous act that any of us did. It's his work. So why should you treat sinners of the world better than you, or better than they deserve? Because God treated you better than you deserve, and it's not even close. You will never, ever be able to outdo God in your personal ratio of kindness done to offense received. No matter how bad anyone is to you, you have been worse to God. And no matter how good you are to anyone you meet, God has been better to you. God treated you far better than you deserve. So go and do likewise. And that brings us to the third, much shorter point. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy, which is what he often writes about passages that have the feeling of something many early Christians may have had memorized. And, and he makes these three of these comments like this in 1 Timothy and, um, and then one in 2 Timothy. But this one is the very heart of the gospel, the good news. And Paul says it's trustworthy and something that Titus should insist on. And the result, Paul expects, is that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's a forcefulness of Paul's words here. The, the, the thrust of it is something like an expectation that Christians will be resolutely set on doing good works. It is their intention, it is their desire, it is even, it's the emphasis that they will be about good works. We saw last week that Jesus has an interest in our salvation and that in saving us, Jesus is purifying a people that would be his own special treasure possession, a people, Paul wrote, who were zealous for good works. The emphasis on good works back in verse 1 were the kinds of works that were good for society, good for culture, good for our towns and leaders and fellow citizens and neighbors. But the emphasis in verse 8 and in verse 14 from chapter 2, these good works are the righteous acts that please God. Now, those aren't at odds. You, you could say that the good works of verse 1 are a subset of the good works of verse 8. Because the second greatest commandment, as Liz read this morning, is to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus was actually just quoting the Old Testament. When we love and serve our neighbors, we are honoring God. But not all of our good work in God's eyes has the same immediate cultural benefit as, say, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, treating the sick, or honoring our leaders. And the average non-Christian probably is not going to see you as being a great benefit to society when you share your faith, when you pray, 
when you fast, when you exhort your brother, when you encourage your sister. But God delights in these things. Still, if we are careful to devote ourselves to good works that please God, we will inevitably be ready for every good work that God calls us to do. And after all, Paul writes, these things are excellent and profitable for people. All of our good works are excellent and profitable for people. Meaning probably the outsiders, the the non-Christians, maybe just people in general, but the emphasis seems to be on the outsiders here. And all of these things are. That doesn't mean that non-Christians will recognize the good works we do for God as excellent and profitable for them. Remember how you once were? Foolish? Or, as we said, dull and senseless? A young child is senseless to what is good for her. She cries when we try to airplane food into her mouth. And she kicks and flails when we try to give her medicine. And she loses her mind over a vaccine at the doctor's office. And try to clean up that little scrape she got on the sidewalk and, and, and watch her enter into like a toddler rage. But we, we still feed her. We still give her medicine to heal. We still vaccinate to protect. We still cover her wounds to prevent infection. She doesn't understand because she's foolish. She's dull. She's senseless to what good things you, her loving parent or aunt or uncle or friend or babysitter have for her. And the loving thing to do is to serve her as she needs to be served, not as she wants to be served. That would be a cruel thing to do. Sometimes the watching world doesn't know what is good or what is excellent or profitable, as Paul puts it, because it does not understand the good things of our Heavenly Father, the good things that He has for those who love Him. It might mean sometimes that the most loving thing to do is to say yes, and at other times the most loving thing to do is to say no. It might mean sometimes I'll help you, but not exactly the way you want to be helped. And it might mean that they even reject our help, like the little child who always spits out his medicine. That might be true, especially when we share the good news that God saves sinners by making them right and able to stand before him through the price that Jesus paid on the cross. But it's excellent and profitable for them if they would hear. Some of you may recall the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I hope you do. It's one of the most important passages in Scripture. And there God promised Abraham that if he obediently followed, then I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham did follow God obediently and kept And God kept his promise to him to make him into a nation. His his 12 grandsons formed the ancestry and divisions of the nation that would be called Israel. (laughs) 
But was it a great nation? Was it a great people? Maybe not if we look at the pages of Scripture. At times it grew more powerful, at times less. It was never really a major world power. At times it was generally faithful to God. At other times, most of the time, unfaithfulness characterized it. But God's promise was not complete. In time, God brought a descendant of Abraham, Jesus, one who was more righteous than Abraham. And as we learned last week, he is creating a people rooted in him, a people that shared the faith of the ancient Abraham, a faith that obediently follows God. In Jesus, there is a truly great nation being built, a people for his own possession. And in Jesus, all the world will be blessed. And so when we do good works in Jesus' name, we are showing the blessing of God to the world. We are revealing his character and his actions so that they might come and join the nation that he is building, a nation of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every language. We do good to show off how good God is. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we need a new politics. Not a new party, not a new platform, but a new way of engaging the total complex of relations between people living in society. A new politics rooted in the gospel. A politics that treats others better than they deserve because God has treated us better than we deserve. And he is calling those outsiders to leave their old lives behind just the same as he called us. Let us show off the politics of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would train our hearts, train our minds, train our tongues to be shaped by your gospel that we might engage a weak and weary world in a way that honors Jesus Christ and makes much of him and shows the same grace and mercy and compassion and love that he showed us. And so would many flock to your new nation as refugees from this broken and dying world. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.